Let's open the Holy Scriptures this morning to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. You'll notice in this chapter that the Apostle Paul, writing to Titus, on the one hand, reminds him that we are not saved or justified by the works that we do. But on the other hand, he also encourages Titus to encourage his congregation to be careful to maintain good works. So we're not saved by them but we must be careful to maintain them. Let's read the chapter together. Put them in mind, Paul writes to Titus, who was a pastor. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost." which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these sayings I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Call your attention to Lord's Day 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 24, the Catechism asks us three questions. First, but why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit? Which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, last time when we considered Lord's Day 23, we learned that the prophet of believing in Jesus Christ, as he is presented in the scriptures and proclaimed in the gospel, is that I am righteous in Christ 
before God. I am righteous in Christ by faith. What does that mean? The Catechism taught us that although my conscience accuses me, constantly accuses me that I have broken all the commandments of God and I have kept none of them perfectly, and I'm still inclined to all kinds of evil, yet, by faith in Jesus Christ, God imputes to me and declares to me that I am righteous in Christ, in the Christ of the gospel. I am righteous, holy, fully, and completely in Christ, so that, although I do sin constantly, it is just as if I never sinned, And although I don't keep the commandments perfectly, it is just as if I have kept the commandments perfectly. I'm righteous in the sight of God, perfectly, fully, and completely righteous in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That's what we learned in Lord's Day 23. But man does not like that doctrine. You might think that man would love that doctrine, Because it's a gracious doctrine, a gracious salvation, a free salvation. There's nothing required of you that is the basis of that salvation. It's all a free gift of grace. But man does not like that doctrine. Man hates that doctrine. And in fact, we also hate that doctrine by nature, in ourselves. And we hate that doctrine because... That doctrine teaches us that there's nothing for us to contribute. And we want to contribute. We think we should be able to contribute. We think that our works are worth something. We think that they earn something. And so this Lord's Day deals with objections that man raises. Unbelieving man, but even that old man inside of us raises these objections And in the first place, the objection is, wait a minute, wait. Cannot our good works be the whole or at least a part of our righteousness before God? Surely our good works are at least a part of that righteousness. In the second place, the objection is, wait a minute. Doesn't the scripture say that God will grant a reward to us that he will reward our works. Therefore, don't our works merit that reward? And then in the third place, the objection is, well, if that's really true what you say, that it doesn't depend upon your works at all, then that doctrine makes men careless and profane. Why would anybody strive to do good works if their salvation doesn't depend on those good works? But our doctrine, the objector says, our doctrine makes men careful and godly. Our doctrine, that a man is justified by works, that doctrine motivates people to abound in good works. Those are the objections. And the Catechism deals with those objections in this Lord's Day and refutes them conclusively. And that's what we intend to do as well in defense of of justification by faith alone, the truth of Scripture, the truth of the Gospel. So I call your attention to the Lord's Day under that theme, defending justification by faith alone. First of all, we notice the first objection, and we answer it, we are justified without our works. Then the second objection, and we answer that we are rewarded not of merit. And the third objection, which we answer by pointing out that Christians do good works. They are the fruits of thankfulness. Beloved, the good works that we perform are not the whole or even a part of our righteousness before God. Man does not like that. You do not like that. I do not like that in ourselves. But that's the gospel, and that's scripture. That's what we read. That's what the apostle wrote to Titus. In this chapter, in verse 4, he says, After that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy 
he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have been justified by his grace, and by his grace we have become heirs of eternal life. Now I would like you to look this morning at Article 24 of the Belgic Confession as well. You can find that in the back of the Psalter, and I would encourage you to read that this afternoon perhaps, or even throughout the sermon as I make reference to it. Article 24 of the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession in that article makes the interesting note that even the good works that we perform now as Christians, and we do perform good works, but the Belgic Confession says even those good works are of no account towards our justification. For it is by faith in Christ that we are justified even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good works any more than the fruit of a tree can be good before the tree itself is good. Before we are justified by faith in Christ, we cannot do a single good work. But being now justified by grace through faith in Christ, we can do good works. But those good works that we perform now, they don't contribute to our justification. That's done. We're justified. And the Confession of Faith points that out. They are of no account towards our justification. For we are justified even before we do good works. Fully, completely, perfectly justified. So why would we have to do good works to add to that justification? It's already perfect. It's already complete. It's already done. We're justified by grace. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, is given to us, granted to us as a free gift before we even do a single good work. So obviously we don't do those good works to contribute to our justification. They are not the whole and they are not the part of our justification. We are wholly, perfectly justified before we do them. But man says, no, I don't like that. I don't want that. Man says, well, maybe Christ came into the world just to set an example for us. Maybe that's why he came. He set an example by his obedient life, by his godly life, by his teachings, and by his sacrificial death. He set an example. But now we have to follow that example. We have to walk behind him and do the good works. We have to obey. We have to do our own righteousness, and that will be the whole of our righteousness. That's the Pelagian teaching. That our righteousness is wholly from us. Jesus is just an example. Or maybe they recognize that's not the gospel, and so they say, well, maybe Christ came into the world to do a bit more than that. Maybe he came to do the negative part of our righteousness. We have sin, original sins and actual sins, lots of sins. So maybe Christ came to die on the cross to pay for those sins, but now we have to supply the positive part, the positive righteousness. He suffered, and now we do the righteousness. So our righteousness is just a part. Christ did part, and we must do part. And you put the two parts together, and that's our righteousness. There are still others who say that semi-Pelagian doctrine cannot be the gospel either. And they want to make it all of Christ, so they think. So they say, no, Christ came into the world to do the negative and the positive part. He paid for our sins on the cross. He earned righteousness by his life. He did all of that, all of that. They'll emphasize that he did all of it. But then they'll come and they'll say, but there's one thing you have to do. You have a part, only a small part, little, tiny little part. But you have to make yourself worthy of receiving that by faith. And so they present faith as if faith 
is the one little tiny thing that we have to do, the one little condition, the one little part, the one thing we have to add. And when we add that, we make ourselves worthy and we access all that righteousness. Just one little part. But the Catechism says no. Remember back in Lord's Day 23, the Catechism said about that faith, why do you say you're justified by faith alone? The Catechism said, not because I make myself worthy by my faith, but because faith, which is the gift of God to me, by which I embrace Christ and receive all of that righteousness from him. Faith is the means, not the condition. Not the one little thing we have to do, but the means that God gives to us by which we receive the whole thing. Now the Catechism wants us to understand that very clearly, why that can't be, why we can't add even a tiny little part to that righteousness. And it makes two arguments in this Lord's Day. The first argument is this. The righteousness that God requires must be absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Without any weakness, without any flaw, it must be perfect. And in absolute conformity to the law of God. Have you ever thought about that? As you're working at your job, as you're sitting on the couch in your living room, or you eating a meal together, or you're reading a book, or you're doing some recreation. Have you ever thought about the fact that at this moment too, at every single moment of my life, God requires me to give absolutely perfect obedience. When I'm fishing, when I'm hunting, when I'm watching TV, when I'm sitting down at the supper with my family, my relationship to my wife or my husband, in my relationship to my coworkers or my employer, in my relationship to my neighbor. At every single moment, God requires that we love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. People today don't think like that. They don't think God really requires that. They don't think God is so rigorous and so strict that he would require absolutely perfect obedience. Really, absolutely perfect. They tend to think that as long as they don't go off and murder somebody with a gun, as long as they don't cheat on their wife having an affair, as long as they don't steal from the bank, as long as they're a pretty good person, that should be good enough. As long as they put forth a pretty good effort, that should be good enough. But God doesn't say, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, live however you please. God will not approve us. He will not justify us for that. That's not good enough. God requires absolutely perfect obedience. And now you say, What if I attain to a very, very high level of piety? Not only do I not commit murder, adultery, idolatry, blasphemy, robbery, but even I cultivate within my heart and soul a pious and godly and humble attitude. And I attain to a very high level of piety. Isn't that sufficient? No. It must be absolutely perfect, absolutely perfect in all respects, in every relationship, in every sphere of our life. That's the first argument. The second argument complements that. Because the question now is, well, has anyone done that? And the answer to the catechism is, Our good works cannot be the whole or even a tiny little part of our righteousness before God because even our best works are defiled with sin and imperfect. Even our best works. 
See, maybe somebody would try to argue, Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of our sins. So those are all out of the way. God forgives all my sins. And Jesus, by his life, has supplied the lion's share of my righteousness. But maybe God just wants me to contribute one part. Maybe even just one work. Just one. And the Catechism says, then that one work must be perfect. And you don't even have one perfect work. Not even one. Neither do I. Don't we perform good works? We've said that. Yes, we do. Back to the Belgic Confession, Article 24. It's a beautiful article, and it says, being justified by faith in Christ, we do good works. And the Confession says, these works, as they proceed from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable in the the sight of God. These good works are sanctified by his grace. They are good. They are good works. They are acceptable in the sight of God. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, 9 and 10, even stronger language, you might say. He says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him. And then it says, He cannot sin. Christians cannot sin, he says. Because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. The people who don't do righteousness are not of God. Those who do not love their brother are not of God. And then the positive is implied there. Those who do righteousness and those who love their brother, they are born of God. They manifest that by their works. Doesn't the scripture and the confessions tell us that we do good works? Truly good works. In fact, we cannot sin. That's true. But that's only true of us in principle. It's only true of us in our new man. I want you to think of it like this. God has planted a seed in the deepest part of your soul, in your heart. Your heart is the very center of your soul, the center of your spiritual existence. Deep, 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 deep in your heart, God planted the seed. That's what John is talking about, that seed. His seed remaineth in him. He cannot sin. That seed, that seed is the resurrection, immortal life of Christ. And that seed cannot sin. No sin emerges out of that seed. But that seed which is deep, deep down in the heart, which cannot sin, that's the source of all the good works that we perform. They all flow out of that seed. But now think of it this way, that that good work has to go on a long journey before it is finished. From that seed, from the heart, it has to travel through the rest of your heart. It has to travel through all of the regions of your soul. It has to travel through all of the, the areas of your mind and your will. And when that work which begins in the seed and the heart travels and goes on this journey through your soul and your mind and your will, that's when it becomes defiled with sin. Started out good. And as it flows through the regions of your soul, it comes out through your body and your hands. And with your hands, you do that good work. And with your eyes, you do that good work. And with your mouth, you do that good work. And with your feet, you do that good work. But as it started, it was perfect. But when it flowed through you and came out on that journey... It was defiled. Every single work that we perform, even our best works, defiled with what? Well, I think we know. Have we ever performed a good work that had no selfish motives whatsoever? Have we ever performed a good work that had no selfish expectations whatsoever? hoping that as I do this good work, something good will come back to me. And that's why I'm doing it. Have we ever performed a good work that had no evil methods to it? Or 
a good work in which we never had any complacency, any, any lack, any deficiency, but we were fully 100% zealous in our love for God with our mind, heart, soul, body, with all of us. We were wholly devoted to God with that good work. Have we ever done a work like that? There was no pride in it. There was no resentment. There was no foolishness in it. There was no regret. It was absolutely perfect. I've never done a work like that. Oh, how I would long to. Someday I will. But in this life, I never have. And that doesn't discourage me from doing good works. As we'll see later, we have tremendous motives for doing good works. But it does humble me. And it teaches me, even my best works can't be the whole of my righteousness or even a part. And then I just go right back to Christ. He is my righteousness. Thank God. God has provided me with Christ as the whole of my righteousness that I receive by faith. There's a second objection, a very important one, and that's the second question of our Lord's Day when man now comes back and says, what? What? Don't our good works merit a reward in this life and in the life to come? Isn't there a reward? Doesn't Scripture speak of a reward? And if Scripture says that there is a reward, if Scripture says that God is going to reward us according to the works that we have performed, then isn't it clear that by our works we merit that reward? We earn it. So the objector says. Now there are some who would say that any good work that you perform merits a reward. You earn it by your work. If it's a good work, you earn it. You earn a reward. Others, perhaps, would say, well, no, there are some good works that do not earn a reward. There are some good works that are just required. God just requires us, don't commit adultery. And if you don't commit adultery, that doesn't earn you anything. You just did the right thing. God says don't murder, so if you don't, you've just done the right thing, you haven't earned anything. Maybe they would say that. And if you're faithful in your marriage and you're faithful at work, you're just faithful in your routines of life, maybe they would say, that doesn't really earn anything, but you're just doing what's your duty to do. That's good. It doesn't earn anything. But then they might try to say, but don't you believe there are some works which do merit a reward? After all, as one of my college professors said in my business ethics class so many years ago, at Calvin College. Don't you believe that if a soldier in the heat of battle with bombs going off and guns being shot and smoke and fire and he spots a helpless innocent child and he runs into the fire of the battle to save that child, don't you believe that that is an extraordinary work? Don't you believe that that merits a reward? Surely he's going to get a badge of honor from the military. But don't you believe that God will give that a reward too, a special reward, because he earned it? Or don't you believe that, if you're a Roman Catholic, don't you believe that if a man or a woman takes a vow of celibacy, and if he's a man, he vows he will never be married. He will never have any sexual relations, but he will devote himself to the monastery for the rest of his life, reading scripture and prayer. Don't you believe that that merits a reward? Or as a nun? Or what about a man who is very rich, living the good life, and he sells everything that he has and gives it to the poor and devotes himself to a humble and modest lifestyle, 
of serving the church. Doesn't that merit a reward? What about the missionary who goes into a foreign land? A land where he knows there will be hostility, persecution, danger. His life is at risk. But for the sake of the gospel, he goes into that land and he boldly preaches Christ crucified and risen from the dead and he's stoned to death. Won't he merit a reward? And they call that acts of supererogation. Supererogation, meaning... If you do those things, those aren't really required. But if you do those things, you're going above and beyond the call of duty. Those are special acts that merit a reward, so they say. Oh, we're very impressed by those acts. We are, we human beings. We will place a star, a badge of honor on that soldier's uniform and we will speak highly of that missionary who died in the service of Christ and so on and so forth. We think very highly of those. We're very impressed. But there is no such thing, and my college professor didn't agree with me, there is no such thing as an act that in God's eyes goes above and beyond what he calls us to do. Even when we have done our best works, the most impressive works, that was only what we were required to do in that situation. Just think of the soldier in the heat of battle. The bomb's going off and there's a child there. Is he doing something above and beyond the call of duty to rush in and rescue that child when God says to him, love your neighbor as yourself? Oh, it's a hard thing to do. But doesn't God require it of that soldier in that moment? Doesn't God require the missionary whom he calls to preach the gospel in all the world, even in dangerous places, to do that? Come what may. There are certain things that God does not require. He doesn't require us to take vows of celibacy. That's not even biblical. That's why that doesn't exist in the Reformed faith. That's a Roman Catholic corruption. They think it's a great work, but it's not. It's not a good work even. Selling all that we have and giving to the poor, that's hard. That seems like a very good and meritorious work, doesn't it? But the point is, there are no such works that merit a reward. Even the best works that a human being could do are what God requires, because he says to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength and energy and power, with all of our gifts, with all of our opportunities, with all the circumstances of our life. And those are all different for every one of us. Each of us has a different mind, a different heart, a different soul, different gifts, different opportunities. We're not all missionaries. We're not all soldiers. We're not all married. If you're not married, then you don't even have the opportunity as a husband to love your wife. If you're not married, you don't have the opportunity as a wife to submit to your husband and, and love him and honor him. We all have different gifts, different paths. God is in control of all of that. But all of us, whatever our calling, path, station, gifts, in that place where God puts you, he commands you to love him with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. There are no acts that go above and beyond the call of duty. That's why the catechism insists this reward is not of merit, but of grace. It's impossible for a man to merit something from God. Because if you merit it, that means you're placing God in a position that he has to give it to you. You've done something to place him in debt to you. That's not possible. We are always indebted to God. Again, the Belgic Confession, Article 24, says, Therefore, we do good works, but not to merit by them. For what can we merit? Nay, 
We are beholden to God. In other words, we are indebted to God. He is not indebted to us. We are indebted to God for the good works that we do. Since it is he that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In the meantime, we do not deny that God rewards our works. But it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. The good works that we do are our gifts, or rather, his gifts to us. Those good works that we do is God's gift to us. When that soldier goes and rescues that child, when the missionary gives his life as a martyr, that was a gift of God to that person. He couldn't do that of his own strength. God gave it to him to do it. God worked it in him. And God crowns his own gifts. God does reward us. The scriptures teach that abundantly. Think of Matthew chapter 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, for example, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. When you are persecuted, Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. So rejoice. In Matthew 6, where he speaks of giving alms and prayer and fasting, all good works, he says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, himself shall reward thee openly. When you put your collection in the bag, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You, you cover that offering with your hand so nobody else sees it. In fact, your left hand doesn't even see it. You do it secretly. You give your offering. And what you have done secretly, your Father will reward you openly. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in glory of his Father with his angels. And then shall he reward every man according to his works. He will reward every man according to his works. Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. That's the promise. Obviously, God promises to reward the good works of his children. But that reward is not of merit, but of grace. The objector is saying, you see, all those scripture passages prove that by your works, you've earned the reward. The catechism says, no, you haven't. You haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. Because when you've done all those works, you've only done what's required. You've only done your duty. But God promises to reward those works. How can that be then? If we didn't earn it, and if we don't deserve it, then what do you call that? Grace. That reward is not of merit. That reward is of grace. He doesn't have to reward our good works, but he does. And he promises to. And why does he do that? To encourage us. To comfort us to give us hope that this Christian life is not vain and futile and to no purpose. Jesus says, rejoice when you are persecuted. Great is your reward. So rejoice. You don't suffer for naught. These good works that we do are God's gifts to us. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in him. You know what that means? It means before the foundation of the world, before the time even began. God prepared every single good work that you would perform in your life, in my life. He prepared it. He determined it. He determined all the circumstances of it. He ordained it. And now, now in your life, he gives it to you. You say, what, he gives me a work that I do? Yes, he gives that to you because you can't do that. I can't do that. But he gives it to you. He works in you the willing and the doing of that good work. So that good work, although we do it, it's God's gift to us. And when we do it, we don't say, aha, what I did. But we say, thank you, Lord, for giving me that opportunity to do that work. Always we are thankful to God because he's gracious to us. In Hebrews 11, we read that by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's what Moses chose by faith. Why? For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses understood that enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, that will have its reward too. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says again and again, the Pharisees who do their good works to be seen of men, they have their reward. That's their reward. The praise of men, that's their reward. Moses had respect unto the recompense of the reward, the reward that God would graciously give him So that helps us to understand what is meant when the Bible says that Jesus is coming to reward every man according to his works. According to his works. The Bible never says on the basis of his works. It never says because of our works. He's going to reward you because of the works you did. And on that basis, God will reward us because of the work that Christ did. He will reward us because of the work of the Spirit in us. He will not reward us because of what we've done. But he will reward us according to our works. The works that he's given us to do. According to those works. And that means that the reward, although in a certain sense it will be the same for all of us, that reward will be the crown of everlasting life. All of us will get to dwell in paradise as we will see in the second sermon, with God through Christ for all eternity. And yet that reward will consist of different degrees of glory for each of God's children. Not not on the basis of our works. According to our works. As soon as we say it's on the basis of our works, we're so prone to think, well, there's going to be degrees of glory in heaven? Well then, I'm going to get busy because I want to have a higher place in heaven. I want to have a higher degree of glory, so I'm going to start working, 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 working so I can get a higher place in heaven. That's how we think. Work hard and you'll get more. As soon as you think that way, the opposite happens. You get less. Isn't that what the disciples were squabbling about? Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I want to be the greatest. Lord, what what can I do? What can I do to become the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus said, humble yourself. Become like a little child. Then you are the greatest. Oh. The Lord calls us to abound in good works. The apostle says to Titus in this passage, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And then he goes on to say to Titus, this is a faithful saying. I want you to affirm constantly in the church that believers might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And he says it again at the end of the chapter. And the whole epistle is saturated with 
the many good works we are called to do. But we are not called to do those good works out of the motive of getting something, gaining something, meriting something. Even even if we think of it this way, that I'm justified merely by grace. That's my righteousness. But now, I'm only thinking about the degrees of glory. And I'm going to work for a higher degree of glory. No. We never work to gain something. We are to work out of the motive of love. Love is different from working to gain. Working to gain is what we do at our jobs. Now we have to love our employer, that's true. But you don't serve your wife to gain something from her, to get something from her. You don't help your husband to get something from him. You do it because you love them. Right? There's a relationship between you and that person. That's unconditional love. We can hardly wrap our minds around that. That's our selfish nature. Constantly doing something to get something. That's not a good work. The motive, the only motive, is love for him who first loved us. Another word for that is gratitude. And then, you see, when we do get to heaven at last, we look around us and we see the various degrees of glory that are given to each of God's children, then we won't be envious of those who have a greater degree of glory and we won't be boastful of the degree God has given to us, you see? Because when we look at others, we will just see God's handiwork, God's grace. And we will stand amazed, not at what he has done, but what God has done in his life and in our lives as well. We will not boast. Look at the degree that I've been given. No. Thankfulness, because we know we didn't do it. God worked it in us and gave it to us. That's the reward of grace. There's one more objection in this Lord's Day. Doesn't this doctrine make men careless and profane? All of grace, not of merit, don't have to do anything to get that justification. That reward is not based on our works. Don't you just totally deflate Christians from doing good works? Don't you know that the only real thing that can motivate people is the idea that they're going to get something for it? That's what motivates us human beings. That's the objector's thinking. You have to motivate people by telling them that if they do it, they're going to get something. That's our natural mindset. So the objector says, You're going to tell people, you're going to really preach to people that they don't have to do anything, nothing, to be saved, to be justified, that it doesn't depend upon anything they do. It's all of God through Christ by faith. Well, they're not going to do good works then. Does that mindset ever arise in your heart? Surely it does. It rises in all of our hearts. That's our natural way of thinking. And unfortunately, that's often the case, isn't it? We're very motivated to do when we get. But the teaching of the catechism here is, if that attitude is found in a person, that's not the fault of the doctrine of grace. That's the fault of the person. That's the sinfulness of the person. If the person refuses to love his wife because she's not loving him back, 
That's the fault of the person. It's not the fault of the doctrine. If that man really knew the doctrine, if he really truly had a living faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me, he wouldn't treat his wife that way. And the more we understand what God has done for us, the more we increase in thankfulness, the more we abound in good works. They arise out of thankfulness. That's what the Catechism teaches. Thankfulness. Are you thankful? And the Catechism says, by no means. No. This doesn't make men careless and profane. It makes them thankful when they truly understand it. In fact, the Catechism says it is impossible that those who have been engrafted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. That's impossible. There's an, there's an inevitability here. Now, some will run with that, that idea. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's impossible that it doesn't happen to the point where they just say, it just automatically happens. It's not what the Catechism is saying. The Catechism is saying it is impossible for those who have been engrafted into Christ by a true faith so that they know Christ and they know what Christ has done for them, it's impossible for them not to bring forth fruits of thankfulness. It's impossible that they will not be thankful. And that's a very powerful thing too, isn't it? We get that. Someone has done something for me, all of that. He saved me, rescued me, broke my chains and set me free, forgives all my wretched sins and iniquities. He's done everything for me, everything for me, for me. And it arises out of our hearts, deep in our hearts, this desire to be thankful. And even though we know I can't produce even a single perfect work in this life, I'm going to try. I'm going to keep trying until the day that I die and I'm going to look forward and long for the day when I can do that perfectly. Oh, for that day. That's the thankful Christian heart. So, give thanks to God. After that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. According to his mercy, he saved us. According to his mercy, according to his grace, he justified us. Now, as Paul exhorted Titus to teach in his congregation, I teach here, be careful to maintain good works of thankfulness. Amen. Father which art in heaven, we give thee thanks for thy grace and mercy toward us. All of this grace. We thank thee for Christ Jesus and all that he has done for us and in us. We pray that we might have thankful hearts and might bear much fruit. And as we strive to live the Christian life, keep us from the pitfall of ever thinking that any one of these works somehow deserves or has earned any part of our salvation. But give unto us, Father, constantly thankful hearts that are just thankful to do good works in love for the 